Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. With the presidential primary still months away, climate change heats up as the number one issue. More candidates have put out comprehensive plans on energy and global warming than on any other domestic issue. More than health care, more than education, and we just think that's going to continue to grow as we get closer to this election. Also, Fox News and greenhouse gas reductions. Media mogul Rupert Murdoch launches a global warming initiative. Our work really falls into two buckets. It's a massive effort to reduce our own energy use and our carbon emissions, and also to engage our audiences around the world on the issue. And union workers say protecting habitat for hunting can save the environment and a way of life. In Maine, anyway, hunting's always been a way to fill the freezer and uh, cut the cost in, in groceries. This week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. It puzzles political pollsters. 63% of Americans say that the country is in as much danger from environmental threats as terrorism. But typically, come Election Day, voters give environmental issues short shrift. Or at least that's the way it's been till now. Election 2008 is shaping up differently. With global warming and energy issues on people's minds, presidential hopefuls are feeling the heat. As Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports, candidates on the campaign trail are making climate change a primary issue. Al Gore keeps telling us, no, he's not running for president. I'm really not. I've fallen out of love with politics. But Gore and other climate change activists can already claim a sort of victory in the 08 race for the White House. In January, Gore told Living on Earth he hoped to see the political climate change when it came to global warming. I want to see the creation of a new political reality in America where the candidates in both political parties are competing among themselves to offer genuinely effective solutions. Just five months later, most of the frontrunners in the presidential race are doing just that. The facts are facts. And climate change is real, and it's threatening, and it's inevitable that we act. This is a problem whose time has come. The long-running debate over the existence of climate change is over. We've moved from the question, is it real, to the question, what can we do about it? And it's not just sound bites from Senators Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and John McCain. All three have detailed plans to cut emissions of the heat-trapping gas carbon dioxide. McCain sponsored the first bill in Congress to call for a cap-and-trade system to control CO2. Clinton and Obama support his bill and call for even stiffer reductions. Former Senator John Edwards proposes ambitious CO2 cuts, and in a symbolic move, Edwards was the first major candidate to make his campaign carbon neutral. He'll offset emissions from his car and jet travel through donations to clean energy and reforestation programs. Naveen Nayak, with the League of Conservation Voters, says most major candidates now have specific and substantial campaign platforms on climate change. We're really encouraged that eight months from the first vote, 
more candidates have put out comprehensive plans on energy and global warming than on any other domestic issue, more than healthcare, more than education. And we just think that's going to continue to grow as we get closer to this election. Nyack says candidates are catching up with public opinion, which shifted sharply in favor of action on climate over the past two years. In exit polling from fall's congressional elections, roughly half the respondents said global warming played some role in deciding their vote. And that lesson is not lost on those Democratic presidential candidates who are lagging in polls and fundraising. Several have put out bold climate policy as a way to stand out in a crowded field of contenders. Here's New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. I believe it is such a huge national priority that this is the centerpiece of my campaign on domestic and foreign policy. This issue, it is so important. Richardson's aggressive timetable for slashing CO2 and raising auto fuel efficiency won praise from conservation groups. Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd pushed things a bit further by being the first candidate to propose a tax on high-carbon fossil fuels. Revenue raised by the carbon tax would go to renewable energy and efficiency programs. Of course, in politics, tax can be a four-letter word, and Dodd's idea sparked vigorous debate among Democrats. By swinging for the fence with ambitious programs, these so-called second-tier candidates are expanding the range of climate solutions in the debate. Among Republicans, McCain is so far the only candidate making climate a priority, and he's doing it in a way he hopes will resonate with Republican primary voters. McCain's recent speeches cast climate in national security terms. A group of senior retired military officers recently warned about the potential upheaval caused by conflicts over water, arable land, and other natural resources under strain from a warming planet. It is a serious and urgent economic, environmental, and national security challenge. Other Republicans have been cooler to global warming. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney and former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani have yet to take a stand. Some political experts say that will change when the campaigns reach California. California moved its primary election up to February 5th, making it much more important in this election. Republican candidates who come into this state and do not take global warming seriously are going to be in trouble. That's Gary South, a veteran political consultant in California. South says California Republicans are environmentally sensitive voters, and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's political comeback proves it. Schwarzenegger recovered from a low point in his first term in part by embracing bold action on climate change. And South says any Republican who hopes to enjoy Schwarzenegger's success must at the very least acknowledge the threat of global warming. If you can't pass that threshold... You're going to be viewed in California as if you're from the planet Pluto, as, of course, you know, the planet Pluto was just demoted. The second thing is you have to have something to say about dealing with and facing the crisis of global climate change. South expects more candidates to tackle climate change as the campaign heats up. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Well, the current occupant of the White House also seems to have felt the political heat of climate change. President Bush has softened his position in preparation for the G8 summit meeting. He now says he wants world leaders to meet this fall to come up with targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The United States is taking the lead, and that's the message I'm going to take to the G8. I'm looking forward to working with them. This could represent a change of heart and policy for the Bush administration. In the past, it's rejected emissions targets. 
Well, a change of position seems to be going around. It was just about a year ago that Fox News Channel aired this documentary about global warming. Global warming. Most Americans believe it exists. And a majority think it's a problem, if not a crisis. But is that true? The Fox News documentary Global Warming, The Debate Continues, casts a skeptical eye on scientific findings. But questions remain. How much will the Earth warm? How much of it is man-made? Is there anything we can do about it? And should we be alarmed? It's a hoax. A total hoax. A total hoax. It's an outrageous lie. It's a, and they knew it. The Fox News Network slogan is, we report, you decide. Well, in a surprising move, Fox and its parent company, News Corporation, have now decided global warming is very real. And Rupert Murdoch, the global media mogul who owns the company, says he's going to do something about it. Murdoch recently announced a new global energy initiative. Rachel Weber is director of the effort, and she joins me on the line. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. So what is News Corp doing now in terms of global energy? Why are you changing? Uh, well, we recently launched our permanent commitment to addressing the issues of energy use and climate change. And our work really falls into two buckets. It's a massive effort to reduce our own energy use and our carbon emissions, and also to engage our audiences around the world on the issue. Uh, by 2010, we've set the target that each one of our businesses will be carbon neutral, so we'll reach zero carbon emissions. We've intentionally set the date a few years away in order to focus on squeezing out as many energy reductions on possible first. Well, for News Corporation and Rupert Murdoch, um, this is a big change of heart. We really see this as falling in line with what the company does. We're always looking to innovate, always looking what are the issues that our audiences care most about. And there's no doubt that climate change and energy use is one of, if not the biggest consumer-facing issue of the next decade. I know that when Rupert Murdoch made this presentation to uh, his employees around the globe, he said climate change presents clear catastrophic threats. We may not agree on the extent, but we can't afford the risk of inaction. Mm -hmm. And he puts the accent on afford. I mean, it's a business decision. Yes, this is clearly a big business opportunity. And I think a number of companies out there have really proven that there's a space here for businesses to get involved, whether it's in developing new technologies or engaging with a consumer through a technology that they're going to implement into their homes or into their business life. And there's a chance to save money within our operations. When you're reducing energy use, you're reducing your costs. And recently, we completed the measurement of our carbon footprint, which was just under 650,000 tons of carbon, which isn't enormous when you look at the grand scheme of the, of the issue, but it's definitely a place where we can make our start. I heard on the set of 24 that you're using a biodiesel generator. Yeah, we're looking, we've started using biodiesel generators and looking at ways to cut carbon as much as we can. It, it's hard in some places because of what's available. And it's an opportunity also to, to kind of put that demand out there. Is it true that Rupert Murdoch recently bought a hybrid car? Yes. Really? Mm hmm I think it's the Lexus hybrid that he has. Ah, ah. Ms. Weber, wasn't it you guys who, who were telling the world that climate change you know, was hogwash? And Let's listen to Sean Hannity. We have a clip of him. Now, first of all, the first thing I want to say is anytime you talk to Al Gore or any of these liberal global warming hysterical people, they all say the debate is over. So I'm going to put up on the screen a list of scientists 
that indeed do question and are skeptics of this, this new mad hysteria here. So liberal global warming hysterical people. Well, I, I think there's always going to be questioning about these issues, and I think it's healthy to, to, to enter into a debate over what the solutions can be. And what we're doing as a, as a business, this is not a journalistic mandate, and our, our company prides itself on journalistic independence, and that's at the core of what our company does. Is there no politics behind this question? Is it simply No, I think what's really exciting here is this is depoliticizing the issue, if anything. This is, this is saying... Um, this is a, an important issue to our audiences, and we have the opportunity to make a change in-house and out-of-house. And I think it's really exciting for our employees as well. It's really, it's, as it becomes more and more solution-based, it becomes more exciting about kind of re-envisioning what a cleaner, more efficient future could look like. Well, Ms. Weber, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Rachel Weber is the director of News Corporation's Global Energy Initiative. Following Rupert Murdoch's announcement, NBC Universal got into the act with its Get On Board program. The company vows to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 3% by 2012. It's part of the parent company General Electric's Eco-Imagination campaign. Coming up, it looks like a zebra, at least from behind, but it's really a member of the giraffe family. An intrepid reporter and pygmy guide search for the elusive and revered okapi. Desiree has just said that the tracks are today's tracks. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Beneath the vast Amazon rainforest are rich fields of crude oil and gas, mixed with hot, salty water and heavy metals. For nearly 40 years, oil companies, including Petrobras, Harkin Energy, Burlington, Hunt Oil, and Occidental Petroleum, have been drilling in the remote forests of Brazil, Ecuador, and Peru. The Ashua people who live deep in the Amazon basin of Peru know the effects of foreign companies' exploration. Until 1999, Occidental Petroleum drilled in the region and then sold its rights in the Ashua territory to another company. To get there, you start in the city of Iquitos, the gateway to the Peruvian Amazon, and travel until the road ends. From there, it's upriver. Even by fast boat, it will take you at least 24 hours to reach the oil-rich Ashuar land. Now, eight years after Occidental left the region, the Ashuar are suing the company, claiming the drilling has poisoned their people and polluted their homeland and waterways. Marco Simons is legal director for Earth Rights International, and one of the attorneys representing the Ashuar. Living on Earth host Steve Kerwood recently spoke with Mr. Simons about the lawsuit. Let's begin with human health. What do the Ashuar say happened to them as a result of the oil activity on their land in northern Peru? Well, it's not just what the Ashuar say. It's what we now know from documented health studies in the region. But the Ashuar have been complaining about health problems from drinking and otherwise being exposed to contaminated water and contaminated soil from the oil production activities. They've experienced everything from stomach pains to vomiting blood and even death. And recent health studies have confirmed that the Ashwar population, almost the entire population, has high levels of cadmium, a dangerous heavy metal in their blood, and that 
somewhere between one-third and two-third of the children of the Achuar communities have dangerously high levels of lead in their blood, which is, of course, known to cause developmental disabilities and other problems in children. Now, Occidental Petroleum says it has no scientific data of any negative health effects resulting from its operations in Peru. Yeah, I'm not sure how they can say that because they now have the results both of the studies that that we conducted and of studies conducted by the Peruvian government itself. So at this point, their denials are ringing a bit hollow. So what was the pathway for this lead poisoning to get into the communities? Well, we're still exploring the precise vectors, but it looks like one of the primary methods of contamination was the discharge of what's known as produced waters. And when you drill for oil, what comes out of the ground is not just crude oil. It's mixed in with a large amount of water and heavy metals and salts. And this goes through what are called separation batteries in order to extract the crude oil. And then they discharge the rest of it as produced waters. Now, in most operations in most parts of the world, and certainly today, the standard industry practice is to re-inject that produced water back into the well from which it came in order to avoid releasing it into the environment. Well, that wasn't done here. Here, the water, and I'm talking about upwards of a million barrels a day over the course of about 30 years, was discharged directly into the environment, frequently directly into the local streams, which fed into the rivers on which the Achuar depend. Now, what are the damages that the Achuar claim they suffered uh, beyond their own personal health problems? Well, the health problem is, is the major complaint, obviously, but it extends far beyond that. The Achuar have noticed over the years that the fish in their rivers have declined in yield and also declined in quality. I talked to many people in, in my visit to the region who described cutting open fish, and when they cut open the fish, it's pure petroleum inside. When they cook the fish, they become hard because of the, the hydrocarbons inside. And so they, you know, to a person, everyone commented on the decline in the fish stocks over the years. And this is the main protein staple of these Achuar communities. So Achuar um, lived alongside Occidental Petroleum uh, for decades there in the Peruvian Amazon. And the company is quick to point out that it sold its oil rights and all its facilities in the region eight years ago to the Argentine company uh, Plus Petro. So why did you wait until now to file your lawsuit? First, it, it took a while for the Achuar to really become cognizant of their rights as a people. Uh, there's been a growing recognition of indigenous people's rights in Peru and throughout the Amazon over the last decade. And second, it's only recently that the full scale of the health impacts on the Achuar population has become known. For years, the Achuar have been in dialogue for Occidental Petroleum, but Oxy has always said you know, we don't have any scientific evidence of any harms to the Achuar people from our operations. Now, what about this Argentinian company, uh, Plus Petrol, that has uh, taken over from Occidental Petroleum in the area? As I understand it, they have signed a an agreement to clean up the area. It's going to cost them, what, $200 million? Uh, in your opinion, what will be left to do after that money is spent? Well, it's important to note that the agreement that Plus Petrol signed with the Achuar essentially only applies to Plus Patrol's operations. So while Plus Patrol has agreed to clean up its own mess and to stop the practices that contribute to pollution on an ongoing basis, Plus Patrol has not agreed to clean up everything that Oxy left behind. 
And so that still remains for Oxy to do. Besides which, even if Police Patrol were to remediate the environment, there is still the human health aspects of this, which have not been accounted for by the agreement with Police Patrol. The Ashwar need medical care. They need monitoring of their medical conditions to ensure that children who are suffering from lead poisoning get the appropriate treatment. And finally, of course, there are past harms which cannot be remediated by cleaning up the mess now. And the Ashwar are seeking compensation for that, and that compensation is largely Oxy's responsibility. Marco Simons, legal director for Earth Rights International, spoke with Living on Earth host Steve Kerwood. We contacted Occidental Petroleum for response, but they declined our request for an interview. However, a company spokesman quoted in the Los Angeles Times said, the lawsuit contains numerous inflammatory statements and unfounded conclusions, and told Reuters its operations were consistent with Peruvian government requirements and with internationally recognized standards for oil and gas operations. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs and transcripts are $15. From the Amazon rainforest, we now travel to the Ituri rainforest in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the heart of Africa. It's here you'll find one of the rarest animals in the world, the okapi. European colonists called it the African unicorn. The okapi is an odd-looking animal with striped legs, big ears, and a long black tongue. The okapi share the Ituri forest with the Mbuti pygmies. The pygmies' forest habitat has been under threat, and so too has the okapi. Rupert Cook of Radio Deutsche Welle set out in search of the okapi and has a report. Rainy season in the forests of Ituri province in northeastern Congo. At its most torrential, a curtain of rain reduces visibility to a few metres. While uncomfortable for humans, the downpour is ideal cover for the okapi, a rare and highly elusive relative of the giraffe, thought to be found only in the forests of the Congo. Until recently, more than ten years of civil war and instability made it too dangerous for visitors to experience at first hand the okapi's natural environment and the intensity of Ituri's lush Central African climate. But with recent elections and the gradual stabilisation of the country, there's once again the opportunity to explore the Okapi's magnificent forest habitat and learn just what makes it so unique. Jean-Joseph Mapalanga is the chief warden for the Okapi Wildlife Reserve, a protected area of 18,000 square kilometres in Ituri Forest. The Okapi, it is a very rare species. The Okapi is a symbol of the country. You'll see the money, the Congolese franc, you'll see the symbol of the okapi. And the other aspect, the okapi is a symbol of traditional leader. And that's why people 
But to say, no, we have to protect this symbol. It's a very quiet animal and it's very fascinating because as more as you watch them and as more as you think you get to know an okapi, you're never at the end of discovering new behaviour. Rosemary Ruff runs Gilman International Conservation's Okapi Conservation Project at the Apulu Breeding and Research Station in Aturi Forest, which for the last 19 years has taken the lead in protecting the okapi. It's quite an exceptional animal. Many people don't know the okapi, they never heard the name, they don't even know how it looks like, so it has some kind of mystery around it. From a distance, the okapi's rear resembles that of a zebra, with black and white stripes on its hind legs. The almost elastic suppleness of its neck reminds one of a giraffe, while its silent and graceful movement recalls the limber poise of the antelope. Only scientifically recognised in 1902, the okapi has proven remarkably successful at maintaining its reputation for elusiveness. Sightings in the wild tend to be few and far between, as I discovered. Well, I'm with uh, Desiree Kapamba, one of our pygmy guides. Desiree has just been showing me a succession of what look like extremely fresh poof prints of the okapi. Desiree has just said that the tracks are today's tracks. He's just pointed out one of the plants, the musala plant, which is the name in the Kambuti pygmy language, and also another plant which is called kiki. And both of these plants are eaten by the okapi. The plant has been almost totally stripped bare of leaves, and on the few that remain, there are clear bite marks. And uh, what uh, Desiree thinks is that perhaps the okapi was here this morning, may have even have heard us, and then made its escape. We've been walking now for around two hours and uh, Mataka, the, the tracker, and Filippo, one of the pygmies, have just discovered two quite large piles of okapi droppings and there's another one and these are fresh from this morning. That at least proves that the okapi was within very close proximity to us. When it heard our approach, they took off into the forest. At the Apulu station in the reserve, 15 Akapis are kept in captivity in their natural environment, free to roam around their spacious enclosures in the forest. The Akapi at the station receive much of their food thanks to the Mbuti pygmies. Every day in the early morning half-light, they go out into the forest and forage for some of the 33 different varieties of leaf, which the otherwise free-ranging Akapi normally eats in the wild. Mbuti pygmies from Ituri Forest describe the Akapi's very special significance for Mbuti culture. This collective and cultural attachment to the Akapi borders on an almost spiritual reverence. Cornel Loango is director of international NGO, the Wildlife Conservation Society, or WCS, at the Akapi Wildlife Reserve. Pygmies are the first habitant of this area, and for them, seeing the beautiful Okapis, they call it in their local language, Yarabi, that means the miracle of God. 
traditionally pygmies do not hunt okapi and do not eat okapis too, even the meat, because they believe they are God. It's God with them. Well, we're now coming up to the uh, enclosure of Tatu, and Tatu was born on the 4th of September 1995, and she's just coming towards us right now. She's very curious. Maybe we can go a little bit further inside. It takes a while before she makes her decision to approach us. Well, we're waiting, maybe 15 metres away from her. She seems to be looking very intently right now. Her ears are drawn back, and they're so large that one really can't imagine how cute that hearing is. Tatu? Come on, girl. Now she's slowly moving up to us. Good girl. Good girl. Well, I'm just about to touch her right now. Yeah, it's not a problem. Just touching her, there's this uh, definite grease on her hide. It's very, very fine hair as well, dark brown. It's like velvet, lustrous, shiny. One of the things that really strikes me, perhaps I'm anthropomorphizing, but there is a, a personality to each of these individual okapi, isn't there? Absolutely, yes. All of our 15 okapis, none of them has the same character. Despite the years of strife and lawlessness, the okapi survives in its isolated splendour in the forests of Aturi. Both the Mbuti pygmies, as well as local and international conservationists, deserve much credit for their determined protection of the okapi. Yet severe threats remain. Rosemary Ruff. I think for conservation people... It looks like a huge mountain ahead of us in order to save it. If you want to secure the Okapi habitat, you need to secure the tropical rainforest in Dituri. It's going to be quite a challenge, I think. From our side, we can just help a lot in refusing to purchase tropical wood, timber. And I think it needs to, to be aware in our culture that if we buy some tropical timber, we do actually help to destroy the okapi habitat. I hope people realize that. Rupert Cook, Ituri Forest, northeastern Congo. Our story in the okapi comes to us courtesy of Radio Deutsche Welle. Just ahead, changing the world one solar flashlight at a time. But first, this note on emerging science from Paige Doty. Deep in the heart of the forested mountains of Virginia, a red-backed salamander lives beneath a decaying log. The lungless creature breathes through its skin and eats a range of insects. It seems a simple existence, but all that may change soon. For more than 15 years, amphibian experts have been combating a deadly fungal disease, chytridiomycosis, which has been threatening the world's amphibian populations. But scientist Reed Harris of James Madison University believes the skin of the red-backed salamander may house a cure. He's identified a bacteria called Pedobacter cryokinitis, which lives on the amphibian skin. 
the bacteria may be able to fend off the infectious fungal disease on salamanders and other amphibians. It turns out the fungal disease moves in a predictable pattern. For this reason, Harris says, the bacteria could potentially be used like a fire line against the spread of the disease. Before that can happen, though, more research into interspecies treatments needs to occur. The next step is to take the work to a lab in the Sierra Nevada mountains, where the yellow-legged frog is in critical condition. If all goes well, it sounds like the little red-backed salamander might make quite a leap for its amphibian friends. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Paige Doty. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. There are times when protecting the environment can cost jobs, pitting organized labor against conservationists. But on occasion, unions and environmental groups do come together over shared concerns on issues like international trade, workplace safety, and as Living on Earth's Ian Gray reports, hunting and outdoor recreation. It's around 9 p.m. on an icy night at Sunny's Smelt Camp near Dresden, Maine. Now we're ready. We can fish. Sheila Merrill and two of her co-workers, Ronnie Wallace and Dan Loudermilk, crowd into a small wooden shack over the frozen waters of Merry Meeting Bay. Now, see the blood worms? That's what we're fishing with. That's the bait. They, they do bite. Yeah, they'll bite you. So if you hold them just right, they won't. But when you cut them, they will. Who's got a knife? They're here to try their luck on the nightly run of smelt, a fish about the size of a mackerel. One by one, they set their hooks and drop their lines into the water. It's fun. When they're running and they're biting, feeding, it's fun because you're catching a lot of fish. And you can eat the bones and all. Meryl and her friends are avid outdoors people, but that's not all they have in common. They're also all employed by the Bath Ironworks, one of the biggest shipyards in the country. And they're also members of the International Association of Machinists. As it turns out, many of their fellow union members at the Ironworks also love to hunt and fish. You cannot walk down the production line without seeing pictures of either the fellows or the girls at the yard of what they got this hunting season or last hunting season. Some have a whole wall of all their catches, whether it's fish or deer or bear. But Merrill says that places to hunt and fish in Maine are becoming more and more scarce. A boom in lakefront property is cutting off areas that used to be accessible for fishing. The same is true for hunting lands. Even way up north, I was up in Patton, Maine this year, and the posted signs are just unbelievable. You know, no hunting on this land without permission. Plum Creek Timber Company is one of the largest landowners in Maine. The company always made its land available for people to hunt and fish, But as the price of real estate goes up, Plum Creek has sold large tracts of forest to condominium developers. This trend in changing land use isn't unique to Maine. Our members are definitely finding it harder and harder to find quality areas, whether it's private or public, to hunt and fish on the weekend when they're off work. That's Joe McCardin. He's a lobbyist for the Plumbers and Pipefitters Union. You know, a generation or two ago, you could 
load up your car, put some dogs in the back, and you know a couple buddies could get together, and you could ask a farmer's permission to go hunting. And that's becoming a lot more difficult, especially as some people are buying these huge estates. For many people, hunting and fishing are not just hobbies. They're an identity issue, an essential part of life. The desire to defend that way of life is what's prompted the new Union Sportsmen's Alliance, or USA. Richard Trumka is secretary-treasurer of the AFL-CAO and a fervent fly fisherman and deer hunter. Twenty of our unions came together that that comprised about 3.2 million of our members. Uh, And we said, what do you think about the labor movement getting involved with a conservation group? Uh, Do you think there's a need for it? About 70 or 71 percent of our members said, not only would we like you to get involved, but we'd like to join a group like that that's sponsored by our union who can help us create habitat for the sports that we like. Then came a happy accident. Fred Myers, with the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, was at a conference of conservation groups in Washington, D.C., when he ran into a union leader from the plumbers and pipefitters. There was a gentleman there whose name was Steve Kelly, and uh, Steve looked a little bit disoriented and, and, and lost, and I just basically offered him a little Southern hospitality and said, look, can I help you? And he said, well, I'm, you know, with the plumbers and pipefitters union. And I said, well, that may be the reason you don't know have a seat here is because you're at the wrong meeting. This is this is outdoorsmen. This is uh, hunters and fishermen, not a union meeting. He said, oh, no, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. This is the right place. I'm looking for a conservation organization that could begin to provide information to our 300,000 members. And I said, well, maybe you have sat at the right seat then. Why don't we talk? Myers decided that since the Teddy Roosevelt Partnership is an umbrella organization for other conservation groups, it was in a good position to help the unions. Their conversations with me was like, well, what do we tell our guys to do? Do we tell them join the Turkey Federation, join Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever? But most all of them are all what we call specie or critter-oriented. And there really wasn't one organization out there until the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership came along that represented the, the spectrum of all the hunting and fishing groups that are out there. The TRCP operates by building coalitions around individual conservation issues. That appeals to the unions because it allows them to opt in on certain issues and opt out on others that conflict with union interests, such as logging or limits on altering vehicles. Joe McCardin from the Pipefitters says the collaboration is already starting to influence his union's legislative agenda. For example, the Pipefitters are supporting a measure in the new Farm Bill that would pay private landowners to keep their property open to the public. It works out for everyone involved. The landowner gets some extra money for allowing people to hunt and fish, and access is still preserved for working-class men and women. Many hunters are also concerned about the loss of habitat for game animals. There's an oil and gas boom going on in the Rockies. Much of the drilling is on public lands where people hunt and fish, and energy exploration can often be disruptive for certain species. For our members, you know, they're really at the center of this issue. We get a lot of jobs out of natural gas and petroleum exploration, but we're working with the TRCP to really make sure that energy exploration isn't done in a way that's going to drive away all the mule deer or all the sage grouse in these areas. Sitting elbow-to-elbow with a conservation group at committee hearings on Capitol Hill isn't exactly a natural environment for a union lobbyist. But McCardin says the pipefitters are adapting. In the building trades, we've kind of been labeled as the enemies by the environmentalists. They look at us as the sellout Democrats who who push for energy exploration. 
And, and that's not the TRCP's position. So there wasn't that hostility there, but there was a little kind of awkwardness at first. No one knows how many union members will opt to join the USA, but the potential is large. If all the workers of the 20 AFL-CIO unions joined, about 3.2 million people, the USA would rival the National Rifle Association in membership, a fact that's been noted in NRA literature. What's interesting about this change is it is an opportunity to see a new kind of political constituency literally being born. Gunther Peck is a labor and environment historian at Duke University. And so I think it would be healthy for the environmental movement to have this new constituency of union conservationists, even if they wrinkle and they will wrinkle some of the traditional priorities within the environment, the mainstream environmental movement. You know, it would have been a lot easier if the guys just wrapped these around the nails. Back in the smelt hut on Merry Meeting Bay, the night grows long and the schools of smelt head out to sea under the last of the spring ice. Sheila Merrill, Ronnie Wallace, and Dan Loudermilk chase bites of pork rinds with hard lemonade as they swap fish stories. Yeah, when I caught that pike. Oh, Christ, she is. 33 and a half inches. She's the only one that uh, caught one. What did I say? I told the guys I had this big old perch. Yeah. All of a sudden, one of the lines starts to cut against the current. Get it. Always around his bucket. Three feet. Pretty. That's the magic number. (laughs) The first smelt of the night is hauled out of the water, its body flapping in the air. Bite that son of a... You must bite. I bite it, too, but Ronnie's got it. He caught it. Rolls are rolls. But it really doesn't taste that bad. I've never bit one off. Good job. <laughs> it might not be everyone's idea of a weekend in the woods, but it would be hard to get any closer to nature. For Living on Earth, I'm Ian Gray. Yeah, see, there's not much to them. You actually can swing your finger in there and clean it out. <laughs> Edith Wharton once wrote, There are two ways of spreading light, to be the candle or the mirror that reflects it. Well, former Marine Mark Bent is trying to spread light both ways. And if his company, Sun Knight Solar, is successful, it will illuminate lives in ways never before possible. Sun Knight Solar makes the BOGO light. Instead of using expensive, disposable batteries, BOGO light flashlights draw their power from the sun and also fuel Mark Bent's other goal— to shed light in places now dark due to poverty and war. Mark Bent joins me from Houston, Texas. Hi, Mark. Hello, Bruce. Well, I've got one of your uh, flashlights in my hand. It's orange, but it's not like any flashlight I've ever seen. Why don't you describe it for me? Sure. It's a uh, rechargeable battery uh, flashlight. It's a task light. It's got a solar panel on the side. It's got light-emitting diodes in it, six of them, super bright. And it's got three rechargeable AA NICAD batteries. And what it's designed for is to provide light to the developing world. So why did you call it the BOGO light? Because the concept is buy one, give one. An American buys a light, and they give one away. When an American can buy my flashlight for $25... And at that price, no more money, I deliver a second light to Africa. I put it in Africa. And I give a nonprofit like United Nations High Commission for Refugees or Samaritan's Purse or Save the Children or Feed the Children, all my partners, 
I give them a light, and they pass it out as part of their community service and, and, and work. But also being a former Marine, I have a deep affection and, and love for my, my brothers in a uniform. And so you also have the ability, if, you, if you'd like, is to donate them to the troops, either in Afghanistan or in Iraq. How did you get this bright idea? Well, I lived in Africa for about 20 years, first as a, as a Marine, then as a diplomat uh, with U.S. Foreign Service in the last five years as an oil executive. I was running a subsidiary of an oil company uh, in Eritrea, and my employees, uh, who I cared for deeply, I knew I was leaving, and I wanted to do something for them that was more than just a temporary uh, fix. And so I went to some of their villages, and they were still using kerosene lanterns. And so when it when it hit me really hard that, that lighting was such an, an integral part of their lives and, and they couldn't afford it, I really wanted to do something, so I felt compelled to, uh, to move in this direction. How many people in the world actually wind up uh, not having electricity? The World Bank estimates between 1.6 and 2.2 billion people. So we're talking one-third of the world is off the grid. And if you're off the grid, you have to rely on three things, kerosene, candles, and, and conventional flashlights. Now, kerosene's bad for the environment. It's bad for the, the people breathing in the fumes. 1.6 million people, mostly women and children, die of cancer each year because of the fumes from kerosene. One kerosene lantern puts out 100 kilos of carbon gases a year. And so you talk about the number of people that use kerosene lanterns, and so that's really bad. And the other issue is, even here in the United States, most people don't recycle their batteries. EPA states that less than 1% of our landfill waste is, is batteries, but it's our number one contaminant for groundwater contamination with mercury and cadmium and all the other heavy metals that go into the groundwater. But with my flashlights, they use three nickel cadmium batteries. Right now, the batteries will last 750 to 1,000 nights. And so a child or an adult can actually use the lights for six to seven hours each night for two years plus before the batteries need to be replaced. And so we'll ship in more batteries and we'll do a replacement program to get the batteries out of Africa. There are a number of companies that actually make solar flashlights. What makes your uh, idea so special is, well, is the, is the marketing. Yeah, what I wanted to do was to get lights to people that really needed them, they couldn't afford them. Uh, the World Bank estimates that the average African spends up to one-third of their income on kerosene. But look at, look at the economic benefit to an African. If you're taking away 30% of their expenditures, you're giving them 30% raise, basically, because no longer do they have to pay for the kerosene, you're allowing them to have a massive economic upgrade in their lives. Africans aren't stupid. They just don't have capital. They don't have the ability to, to put things on a credit card, for example, like we do. And so if you give them a 30% increase in their, in their disposable income, they'll spend it on an extra chicken or they'll spend it on extra land to, to grow tomatoes or maize. And they will be able to, to leap out of that, that bottom level of poverty because they, they get a little bit of a head start. All this does is give them that head start, which I think is fantastic. What is the saying? It's better to light a single candle than to curse the darkness? <laughs> That's a good phrase. You know, the problem right now is the uh, the children, uh, most of the children in Africa have to work just to survive. They work in the fields, or they work in cottage industries, or they take care of livestock. So they come home at the end of the day, and they want to read, and they can't because the parents can't afford the kerosene. I was talking last week with the ambassador to Botswana, a brilliant man, very, very nice man, and, and with tears in his eyes, he told me that his grandmother had enough money to pay for for kerosene. His parents didn't. So he got out of the village because he could read. And here's a man at the top of his field, the, the ambassador to the United States. And he sat in his office with me. And uh, it was very touching to, to hear how lighting had made a difference in his life. Hmm. 
what I wanted to do was to give the Africans something that empowers them. And it's, it's an amazing thing. It helps out with education. It helps out with the environment. Security in refugee camps. One of the big problems in refugee camps with the UN is, is violence, sexual violence at night. So we designed this with a, a finger grip on one side so a woman at night can reach out and, and, and touch it and know exactly where the, the light switch is. It has a glow-in-the-dark ring on it. That Actually, my 15-year-old daughter came up with the idea of doing that. So it really impacts people's lives in an amazing way. It's amazing that one light can make such a difference. That's what's so stunning about this to me. It's a great feeling when I get discouraged or I get depressed and I I think that there's some place in the world that's dark right now and there's a little kid that's reading because of my light. We, we got a, a note the other day from one of the Sudanese that's in a refugee camp in, in Ethiopia. And the refugee said that he never had such privilege in his life. And it just broke my heart that here we gave him a light, you know, a light that to us is, is basically a toy, but to him it was the greatest privilege he had. He had no other privilege like that in his life. And that amazes me that, that something as simple as some plastic and LEDs and some a solar panel changes somebody's life that way. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. Mark Bent is founder of Sun Knight Solar, makers of the BOGO Light. week on Living on Earth, you can't see it, but it makes up most of the stuff in the universe. It means if you had a blob of dark matter in your lap, you'd see right through it. It would fall through your lap. There'd be no way to contain it because containing something implies it's interacting with the container. The mysterious nature of dark matter, next time on Living on Earth. week down by the banks of the River Charles. Boston's Charles River is where Living on Earth producer Ashley Ahern found Daryl Smith playing his accordion. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Jennifer Percy, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom, Kelly Cronin, and Lauren Cox. We bid farewell this week to our interns, Paige Doty and Megan Vigent. Good luck, have a great summer, and thanks for a job well done. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 
10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Oak Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.